Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. Ryan Ray alongside Josh... No, no, not Josh Shelton, as he is out today. Uh, folks, you know how it is with Josh. He comes, he goes, he does his own thing. But instead, we have David Blackman. I don't want to say co-hosting David, because I don't want to... Um, well, we know how that's went before yeah. when we had you co-hosting with me. We have special guest, David Blackman, who is on the show and uh, has been gracious to agree to give us a few more minutes than normal. Um, before we get to David, remind you to sign up for our free offer with Drilling Info. If you go to globalenergymedia.com slash DI, that's globalenergymedia.com slash DI, you can sign up for your free trial with the folks at Drilling Info. And uh, man, I tell you, they've got some great software. And so be sure to check that out. Okay, so not going to do a normal show today because Josh is here, um, but we are going to get to David. So, David, thank you so much for giving us a few extra minutes. It's been about a month or two since I've talked to you. How are things going? Great, man. It's just another beautiful day in Texas. I'll tell you what, it's just been an amazing week this week. It has been. It has been. And real quick on Drilling Info, I know that you're a big fan of Drilling Info. We are on the show, and um, I really can't hype their stuff enough. I mean, it's it's... They are on the cutting edge, and it seems like every stupid week they're buying a new company or they're making a new platform. Uh, yeah, you know, new platform, kind of some kind of technology improvement. It's amazing, yeah. So it is amazing. It is amazing. Company. Well, we've got a lot to get to, so let's kind of get to it. And the first thing is I'll talk about a couple pieces that you put out on Forbes. And this will kind of be good for us because we've had some of the stuff with time to questions that listeners have sent in. We've given our answers. I kind of I kind of view you coming on the show, David. You remember um, you know, the old cars, you had to go get a tune-up or you know, kind of get them recalibrated. You're kind of our tune-up on the show. You kind of come on the show, kind of get me and Josh realigned and say, hey, boys, slap us into gear and get going. So um, I'm hoping you can do that for me today. Let's talk. Let's start with your first piece I want to get to, which is Trump giveth a lot more to the oil industry than his tariffs would take away. We had some questions about this, about this um, tariff on the steel industry. And, you know, I, I asked some clients, and that's what I did. I went to some clients and said, hey, what do you think? They were they were kind of worried. They said the purchasing department was kind of worried about the price of steel. Talked to some EPC folks. They said the same thing as adjusting prices. Um, I saw yeah. you tweeting about this, this morning, and I saw you got this piece. Give us your take on this on the steel tariff. Well, yeah, on that piece, I mean, the first, you know, I started it off with just kind of ticking off, you know, all the different places in the oil and gas industry where you see steel in use. I mean, steel is everywhere uh, in every oil and gas related facility from pipelines to the, the oil rigs themselves that drill the well. The drill pipe is made of steel. Pump jacks are made of steel. Um, you know, compressor stations, on and on. All, you know, drive by an oil refinery sometime. What do you see? You see a bunch of towers made out of steel. So uh, steel is ubiquitous in the oil and gas industry, and, and every uh, process related to the industry requires uh, the employment of steel. So anytime the price of steel goes up, uh, that's going to increase costs in the oil and gas industry. So, so my piece, my thesis in that piece was not to say that uh, costs won't go up on the oil business uh, from these tariffs, they will. Um, what the thesis was, was that, well, yeah, but you got to take a look at energy policy as a whole in this administration and how uh, radically it has changed over the last 14 months from the previous administration, including the tax reform bill. 
And when you, you know, you take a look at uh, how much costs on the industry are going to increase and compare that to the cost decreases in terms of regu- regulatory compliance and uh, the, the income tax uh, benefits to, that, that are going to accrue to the industry under that, that new law, uh, you still have a very big net positive to the industry about, uh, from this administration, and, and there's no, no real question about that. And then, of course, the other other part is, you know, uh, right after I actually the same day I released that piece on Forbes, uh, the president announced, well, you know, we we have an exemption in here for Mexico and Canada because we're renegotiating renegotiating NAFTA. And if if we get a good deal on NAFTA, then there won't be any tariffs on steel coming in from those countries. Then he also said, and you know what, every other country subject to these tariffs is going to have the ability to negotiate in order to reduce them or eliminate them. Right. So, so what does that tell you? I mean, it just tells you that the, the president, who has spent the last 50 years of his life making deals in the business world, is using these steel tariffs as a carrot and stick in negotiations with other countries. And I suspect at the end of the day, you're going to see a pretty limited application of the tariffs uh, globally. Yeah. I, I want to say this real quick. I know we're going to plug DB Daily Update at the end, but I just want to say this because um, whether you like Trump or you hate Trump, I think, David, you probably, if I'm curious about what I think Trump's doing, I go to DB Daily Update. I don't check it every day, but there's but there's some times where he does some stuff. I'm like, what is this guy doing? And I go and I read your, 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 yeah, your synopsis. And usually, I don't know if you're tracking your own accuracy rate, but I'm going to give you an edible here. You're pretty pretty much on target with what he's doing and so um when these when these came out i was on db day update kind of following along what he was doing and um it, it's interesting because you know I, I yeah as you as you mentioned there's been kind of this this change in what we thought it was to what we what to what it is which if like you say if you follow trump this is how he negotiates um and so it has been a little bit frustrating i guess because Understanding that he's trying to negotiate on a broader scale, it still does impact the day-to-day operations or the the little guy, if you will. And, um, sure. and so, I guess I guess what your 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 takeaway from your piece is is that okay, it may hurt you here, but you got to look at all the money you save on tax reform, uh, the raises, the bonuses, all of this stuff that we're celebrating a few months back. And say, okay, well, we got this, and this is the bad thing. And just, I mean, I'm gonna go on a limb here and say you're probably not a pro tariff guy. Um, and so, um, no. and so, you know, it's no, I never have. Yeah. Right, right. And so, but you got to try to balance it out. And if if these deals are renegotiated one by one, the impact might be a lot less than what we think it is. Yeah, and, and that's right. And, you know, the other thing you have to look at is is all these other countries, China and Japan in particular, who are really the targets of the tariffs, let's be honest. That's really who these things are targeted at. Those countries have massive tariffs on goods coming in from the U.S. into their country. And, uh, you know, a big part of the president's campaign, you know, what you have to do in analyzing what the president's doing currently is just go back and look at what he was talking about in his campaign. Because everything he's doing is related to some promise or commitment he made during the campaign. Literally, he's the only president we've ever had who operates that way because most of them get into office and forget about everything they said in the campaign. But this guy is totally focused every day on keeping the promises he made during the campaign. And and so when you go back and you look at what he said about in the campaign, a huge part of what he ran on was the fact that, you know, we don't get treated fairly uh, in the tariff world, you know, exchanges on tariffs. 
where all these other countries have heavy tariffs on American goods coming into their country. And we just let goods come from those other countries into this country with collecting no tax on them at all. And part of what he's going to continue to do, as long as he's in office, is try to even up that equation. And, and you know, you, you're always going to, anytime there's an announcement like that, the media is going to go berserk. And all the political people, on, you know, in both parties, really, are going to go berserk and start declaring, oh, we hate tariffs or whatever it is. But, but at the end of the day, if you just wait a week, you see that, oh, golly, that didn't really have much of an impact. I mean, if you look at the tariff thing. The first thing out of the gate on Fox and CNN and everywhere else was, oh, my gosh, the stock market's going to implode because the president's going to put tariffs on steel. Well, what happened? Yeah, it dropped about 200 points the first hour or two afterwards and ended up ahead on the day. And the next day it went up two or 300 more points. So so if, if you just ignore the hype in the media and the hysteria and just give it a week to work itself out, you're going to see that, gosh, you know, the impacts of this really is not what you're being told by newspaper, media reporters and, and politicians in both parties really is. You know, uh, China did not declare war on the United States because we put a tariff on imports of steel, you know. And, and so we just, I know it's hard because we're blanketed with hysteria every day about everything he does. But the reality is it, it does make a certain kind of sense if what you're really doing is just trying to lever these things into negotiations with these other countries. Yeah, and I guess, you know, it's funny. When you were when we were answering the question on the show and I was talking through it, he hadn't actually signed it, um, the, 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 uh, the executive order at the time. And I remember as I was giving the answer, I thought about I, – I, I haven't told anybody this, but I thought about you and I thought, oh, gosh – David's going to crush me because he hasn't signed it. And David's going to write a, a blog talking about over people overreacting <laughs> until he signs it. And I remember because one of the things I've learned from seriously, again, pro-Trump, anti-Trump, it doesn't matter. One of the things I've learned from reading your stuff on him is, you know, you, you, we all get kind of, like you mentioned, we all get caught up with this hype stuff and you have to wait. Because sometimes he said he's going to do stuff and everyone overreacts and then something happens and then he doesn't do it. And you're like, oh, okay, well, he he yeah, or it ends up being different from what you originally thought. Right, it was, right. You know? So I remember answering that going, and if you go back and listen to the recording, you'll hear me at the end going, wait, because I couldn't remember at the point. I was like, I don't think he's actually signed this. And I was like, I don't know. And there was, there was two things at the time he was working on, and I was like, oh, boy. And I remember at the end, if you go back and listen to the audio, and I was like, yeah, I'm not sure if he signed this or not. And in my mind, I'm thinking, God, David's going to kill me. He's just going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> And here's the other dirty little secret I'll tell you about the the industry that I love and, you know, uh, support in every way is that anytime there's any kind of a policy announcement from any administration that uh, the industry doesn't like for any reason, there's always going to be a, a big, huge overreaction from the industry to it. And... Um, and then you find out, you know, years later that, uh, gosh, you know, the impacts of that really weren't that bad and the industry adopted and here we go. And, and you know, this is a very creative and adaptive industry. It always has been. And even to these higher steel costs, uh, I guarantee you that at the end of this year, the rig count, you know, unless there's some major economic collapse, uh, the rig count at the end of this year is going to be higher than it is today. There's going to be more well, wells drilled every day in December than there are drilled this month. 
Uh, our oil production in the U.S. is going to be higher than it is today, and our gas production in the U.S. is going to be higher than it is today. And and so, you know, it in the political environment, everybody always has an initial overstatement of impacts. And then things start getting worked out, and you realize, gosh, this really wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, and one of the things we've talked about on the show uh, a lot is is it gets kind of frustrating because, um, and we're going to talk about some of this type of stuff here in a second in a different in a different capacity. But one of the things that's really frustrating is we had a story last week we covered: um, oil prices rise on potential meeting between Trump and North Korea, and we just chuckled. We're like, you know, because the traders. They love to move that price because that's how they make money. It goes up and down, up and down, and the price moves. And I mean, I, I don't know. You're the expert here, David. Th- should the price of oil move on a potential meeting on an undetermined date at an undetermined time at an undetermined location with undetermined outcome with North Korea? I, I couldn't figure out a good reason that the price of oil should have bumped a single penny off that. But it seems like the traders just need a reason to bump the price sometimes. Yeah, I you know, er, traders don't like instability and so anytime there's a there's any kind of an announcement that uh, indicates there might be some instability somewhere in the world there's going to be a reaction in that market just like there is in the stock market Uh, i don't understand it frankly um, because i i agree with you i don't i don't see why the price of oil would care one way or another whether there's a meeting between president trump and the little chubby guy over in north (laughs) korea um but that's just the way the market work. It, again, it, just like everything else, it overreacts initially to everything too. I mean, yeah. anytime the uh, you know anytime the crude inventory goes up a hundred thousand barrels, there's a, you know a, a small sell off in the market. I mean, it just oh yeah, it's incredible how 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 minor things impact. No, that's exactly right. And I mean, first off, you're a trader out there making money, making millions. I am happy for you. As long as you're not breaking the law, man, do whatever you want to. Uh, I think just the average Joe, we see those price fluctuations and we kind of, you talk about that hysteria, we go, oh my goodness. But if you go through the week, the API releases on Tuesday night, the price adjusts. Then the EIA release on Wednesday, the price adjusts. Then Baker Hughes on Friday, the price adjusts. And then whatever news throughout the week, the price adjusts. And what, what we, we've talked on the show, I don't have the D, uh, DI drilling info um, rig count up right now. If you look at the rig count for a month ago, it's basically the same thing. I mean, you've had a 10 to 15 rig swing up up and 10 to 15 rigs swing down maybe but it's basically um you know like it's like a thousand and i don't know 50 whatever it is let's see here i can get it pulled up in a second but um it, it's it's basically the same rig count but the traders they don't really like that let's see here we're at 1061 and a month ago we're at 1050 mm-hmm. so we had we picked up a few rigs this week because on tuesday we're at 1050 so since right. tuesday today we picked up a few rigs but basically over a month the rig count has only gone up 11 rigs. And you would think, though, with the volatility of the market, um, and, and the final point on this is, I love reading the headline when the storage report comes out. Um, you know, inventory was up or down, and the analysts expected it to be this. I'm like, A, who are these analysts? And B, how in the world do they actually think they're going to get this thing close? Because the EIA, by their own admission, it's a model. When they give it out, it's it's not even the actual data. They're, they're, I mean, it's a model, and right. they go back and correct those numbers later. So you have analysts who have their own model, and then the traders are reacting to that model against the EIA's model. And it's just to me, it's just the funniest thing in the world because it's like we're moving the price off all these models. If we could wait two months, we would have a lot better idea of what the price actually should be. Yeah, I, and I, I, I don't understand that either. I mean, the traders don't seem to understand the fact that 
the Railroad Commission in Texas, for example, which is where half the oil rigs are, uh, it doesn't have its own production data complete until at least 60 days right. after production. And yet the EIA model model comes out 15 days after the end of the month and tells you production was X. Well, how do they know that? They don't know that. It's it's like a public opinion poll. And maybe they're close and maybe they're not. Um so, yeah, it always gets adjusted one way or another, but it always seems like the model estimate uh, is the one that has the impact on the market and the real yep. number doesn't. And, and talk about the markets reacting. I just went out uh, while you were uh, asking that question, took a look at the Drudge Report, and the headline is Cold War II. <laughs> you know, the, the countries, uh, the free world is, is embarked on another Cold War with Russia, right? So you would think, gosh. That's going to have a major impact right. on the market. You know, the crude oil prices are going to collapse, right? No, the oil <laughs> price is up a dollar. Uh, right. Why? I mean, it doesn't even react right. to something like that. You know, I, I don't get it. I don't understand. No. I, I think, I, just to put a bow on this, I think the point that I would like to make, I think you would probably agree, if not, tell me, is that when you look at the oil price um, or the steel tariffs, you know, we have to remember that people make money um, by doing things that is not necessarily um, what what the true market is. We talk about the market responding to the market on the oil and gas side of things. It's really not the market. They're responding to modeling, projections, and news. And the market takes a while to work itself out. And so, um, you know, for folks in the, on the, out there on the rigs, David, that's the ones I care about going, hey, it's okay. These these price fluctuations, these, these overaction, the rig counts, stuff like that, that's just people making money. We don't need to worry about that right now. We got a, we got a little right. ways before we should be concerned. Yeah, exactly, and that's that's right. Yeah. Okay, so let's turn to your next Forbes. Your next Forbes piece came out on March the twelfth, and we'll link to both these in the show notes as well. Um, debating the permanence of the Permian shell boom. Um, this is this is something that we've talked about on it seems like every show that I'm on. So, um, and I'm curious. I have some ideas. We had a lot of discussion at Sarah Week um, the other day about this. Is that what kind of originated this piece, or just the yeah. overall uh, discussion at large? Yeah, no, I mean, well, I mean, of course, the discussion at large has been ongoing, but the, the exchange at Sarah Week was fascinating to me, but, you know, because you have these two gigantic companies, Pioneer Resources and Pioneer Natural Resources and ExxonMobil through its subsidiary XTO, talking about their incredibly optimistic view of the ultimate potential of the Permian Basin, which is, you know, the very hot play out in West Texas right now. And, um, and then you have, uh, uh, taking a different view, Mark Papa, who also himself is a very, very successful CEO at EOG Resources, which early on was one of the biggest uh, producers in both the Barnett Shale and the Eagle Ford Shale in Texas. And he had incredible success in those places. So, you know, there's a very smart man and he knows what he's talking about and, and, so you have these very, very credible people right. on both sides, right? I mean, I would never argue with any of them about anything, <laughs> and yet they take two fundamentally opposed views of the ultimate potential of, of the Permian Basin. Pioneer Resources is so, they're so optimistic about the potential for the Permian that they're going to sell all their other assets everywhere else and focus their whole business on developing their acreage in the Permian Basin, where they're the biggest acreage holder. And ExxonMobil, you know, announced a few weeks ago that they're going to triple their production in the Permian Basin, 
you know, with a huge capital dedication over the next six years. And by 2025, they're, they're going to have tripled their production in the basin. So it just is, in, in, you know, Mark, his view, of course, is that not that, not that there's, he's not saying there's not a lot of oil in the Permian. His view is mainly that, look, over the last few years, while the price was low, a lot of these operators out there went out and drilled all their best well sites, right, with the highest potential for production, right. you know, just trying to keep cash flow and profitability up while the price was low. And, you know, now they're running out of these prime drilling locations. Well, and so his view is, you know, production from the Permian is likely to peak sooner than what ExxonMobil and Pioneer Natural Resources believe. Um, and, and so it's not that Mark is not saying, you know, there's no oil out there. It's just it's saying it, that, that that's going to peak sooner than these guys think it is. So. Yeah, I think, he, I think he says something to the effect of he did a presentation in November. I can't remember the event, but he said something to the effect of most of the tier one drilling in the Balkan and the Eagleford has been drilled and the tier two and three is kind of what's left. And so um, he's not he's concerned that that might not be as, as profitable as you said. And the logic just from a just from a very simplistic standpoint Smart CEOs, they drill the best first, make the most money, and then as they go along, you would the potential at least for less producing acreage is out there. So at least on a simplistic view, you can kind of see why he would come to that um, position. Sure, and 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 that is honestly nothing new. I mean, that's essentially how sure. it works in any big big uh, oil and gas play. Is you're always going to focus on your best potential recovery projects first or at least early on and and uh, and your the other big factor of course is leasehold obligations you know where right. you have to drill a well in order to hold a lease past its initial term um, but you know I, I think what these other companies and I just also did a, a cover story interview with with the folks at uh, at Parsley Energy uh, you know talking about their Permian Basin operation and, you know, you have Noble has a big stake out there, Apache Corporation, and on and on and on. And it's all these big, very profitable companies that are making huge bets on the Permian Basin. Um, and what they believe is that, yes, you know, we have drilled up a lot of these prime locations. But as technology advances and, and we improve our processes and there's continuous improvement all the time, uh, we're still going to be able to co- to continue increasing production in the Permian for years to come. And and so, you know, again, these are all, all very, very smart businessmen and women who are making these huge multi-billion dollar bets. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to go in and bet against any of them. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned the technology aspect, and that's something that we've had um, come up time and time again. We had it on our first Friday Q&A we do now, and someone from, we had a, a listener from Australia uh, actually emailed in and was asking about, um, you know, we, we read these articles, and we actually covered one last week after that, and it was like, um, hey, you know, well, the technology's here, and it's better, and it's very vague terms, longer laterals, stuff like this. Um, you, we see this commonplace in, in, in articles across the landscape. And I kind of gave a couple reasons I think this is the case. One, folks like me and you who work in the industry, well, we see the, we see the changes and the improvements so often that we don't necessarily sit back and think about how to explain it or, or what the change actually is. We just know that we used to do it this way, and now we do it this way. And if you're in the industry day to day, you just it kind of becomes just, you know, it's normal for you. Um, the second thing is, um, 
first that I would say the people writing the articles may not have that inside access and the companies aren't releasing it. So you don't know. But the final thing is, I think this is probably the biggest reason um, there's a frustration when you read these headlines and articles about improved technology is, is that the technology, as you mentioned, it is changing, um, but it's not changing like we're getting brand new. You know, we're going from a, the, I, I said the Razor phone to the iPhone. We're going from the iPhone 3 to the 3G to the 4 to the 4G and we're a slight app update and iOS 10 or whatever it is. You know, it's just, it's just a very, a very slow process. And so unless we step back and take a very long macro kind of look at the industry we don't think of it as technological uh, changes we go oh well yeah you're doing a longer lateral well doing a longer a longer lateral that's actually a, a pretty big deal and so um because if they could have drilled that lateral longer before they probably would have done it so that's kind of what was my take on it what's your take on this improved technology that we hear about all the time yeah and and there's so many of them um yeah, and it's not just longer laterals. I mean, that has been a big impact. When you re- look at, uh, for example, in the Eagle Ford Shell, um, the first well in the Eagle Ford Shell had a had a lateral that was about half a mile long, right? Well, now they're drilling laterals three to four miles long in the Eagle Ford Shell, and that's over a span of ten years. That's a decade. Um, they've they've gone that the the frack job in that first successful well in Eagle Ford had three or four stages. I don't remember which. Okay. Well, now they're drilling, doing frack jobs that have up to 100 stages. I mean, I heard of a 100-stage frack job the other day. And and it's not just that. It's not just the number of stages. It's not just the length of the laterals. It's also the targeting of the rock. They, you know, the technology just in terms of how they're able to actually analyze the rock as they're drilling through it and actually you know, you can, they can move those drill strings up and down slightly or left and right slightly and get to the best quality rock that they think has the most oil in it and target that as they're drilling along. That has improved massively. Just And so, you know, it, it is. It's like a progression from, from the first iPhone to the iPhone 10. I have an iPhone 10 now, and it's just an amazing bit of technology. And when you, when you look at the original iPhone, there's really not much comparison. Yeah, they're both iPhones, just as these are both frack jobs and these are both horizontal wells, but they're completely different. And and just in a decade, you know, and 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 that's really how it's always been in the industry. Technology has always advanced at a steady pace. You seldom see what you would call a a game changing breakthrough. Uh, like we did in the late 90s when George Mitchell married these frack jobs with horizontal drilling in the Barnett Shale and and successfully completed that first Barnett Shale well. That's a game changer. That's a completely world-changing technology breakthrough. What you generally see instead is these gradual improvements in existing technologies and constant improvement in processes and how you do things uh, that leads to, you know, the potential recoveries from these wells going up and up and up and up. Uh, if you look at the ultimate expected recoveries from wells drilled today and compare them to a year ago, you, it, it might be 15, 20% better in a year. But if you look at that, you know, compared to 10 years ago, you're three or 400% better. And, and so it's just that kind of a progression. And there's no reason and this is the one, you know, exception I might take with, with what Mr. Papa is saying. Yes, even if the best locations have been drilled up mostly, there's no reason to think technology is not going to continue 
on that same progression for the next 10 years and the 10 years after that and the 10 years after that. Um, this is an incredibly adaptive and clever industry that is always you know, used advancing technologies to increase its performance. And there's just no reason to think that won't continue to happen. Yeah, and I think the final thing I would say is that is you, you talk about so so the razor the razor to the iPhone moment was with Mitchell obviously, mm-hmm. um, but now the iPhone to the iPhone ten it's not just the phone itself it's the apps inside the phone and and the, what the apps can do I remember when the first iPad came out I didn't get one because it couldn't do anything and then, <laughs> then by the iPad two came out they had all these apps that it could do so it was a better iPad but the apps were better and it's the same thing with drilling it's not just well you can drill longer laterals. To drill a longer lateral, a lot of stuff has to happen for that to work. And so it's the quote-unquote apps as well. And so um, it, it, so I think in, in, in the industry, I'm going to try to focus on it uh, from time to time when I can, is maybe you know explaining why this is important and why it is a, a slight update. It is the software update, not the new phone. Um, because people do get frustrated, and I understand that. I understand the frustration with going, you kind of hear the same old rhetoric over and over again. Um, but it's not it's not as exciting as going from the iPhone to the, uh, from the Razor to the iPhone. And so right. we probably don't think about it. But I, I do understand people's frustration on that. I want to get your take on it because that's kind of how I see it. It sounds like we're kind of we're kind of on the same page there. Um, I will say this on on Papa's comments. You know, I never get his name right. I call him Papa. Someone says, no, it's Papa. I call him Papa. Someone said Papa, and I'm like, Papa John's Papa John, whatever. Papa, Papa. Uh, so he's, a, he's a brilliant guy. He is. The book, The Frackers. If anyone hasn't read The Frackers by Gregory Zuckerman, go read it. You can understand some of his brilliance in that book. It was um, um, fantastic. But I, I think that my issue, um, not necessarily with any of, uh, of those arguments in general, David, is this, is that if you look at the long-term demand forecast and you just take kind of a moderate view, um, not even the high-end views on where demand is going to be at, it seems that the price – I mean, obviously, we know oil and gas can go from 100 to 20. We, I understand all that. But – but you know, after we gather these next year to two years, uh, maybe three, depending on what happens with the economy, um, the, the, the long-term demand forecasts are only going up. And sure. so um, the price could theoretically be high enough where even if the technology doesn't advance, it's just going to be profitable to drill those tier two, tier three wells just because the price is getting um, you know, higher and higher. Sure. And, it, and it, the other factor is you've got to remember the last three years when, when the price was collapsed. Uh, there was hundreds of billions of dollars in new investment in new exploration for new reserves that was foregone that companies did not invest. Yeah. And when you get three or four years down the road from today, the result of that is going to be we're, we're liable to have a pretty severe supply shortage. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, and, so, and demand is going to continue to advance. Uh, BP's uh, chief economist was, was there at CIRA. And at Sierra Week, and um, you know, uh, last year BP issued a, a report in which they believe peak demand was going to be reached in the mid 2020s. Well, now he's saying, no, 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 uh, we underestimated demand growth, and now he's saying it's going to be in the 2040s before right. the growth of demand for oil peaks and, and starts a gradual downturn, and even that may be an optimistic outlook, uh, because it, it just, you, you just have to understand that the population, the global cop population continues to expand and people in developing nations need energy. Yeah. They need energy and the cheapest, quickest way to get energy, to drive a modern economy 
is through oil and natural gas. I mean, that just is. And you're not going to be able to do it. You can't build enough windmills and put in enough solar arrays to, to do the same thing. And, and if you can, you, it costs you 10 times as much. So the, the demand for, for oil and natural gas, not just oil, uh, globally is just going to continue to rise for decades to come. Yep. And on those forecasts, I'm curious your, your takes on this. When I read those forecasts, it's usually China, India, Pakistan are kind of the drivers. And one of my contentions is, yeah. is if, if Africa ever kind of gets its stuff together as a continent, um, I know there's a bunch of countries in there and a bunch of tribes, I understand all that. But as those countries become more stable and their economies start to grow, life expectancy starts to increase, birth rate goes up, all of these things, I mean, that's a massive continent right. <laughs> with a potential huge population with huge need for oil and gas that we have that it seems like they're in the forecast but they're kind of because we don't know we just don't know what's going to happen right you just don't know and there, there's a billion people on that continent alone who don't have electricity right and so if that if that continent ever kind of gets yes if right. they ever kind of get get up to um modern first world kind of living conditions the the, the demand forecast that we're looking at now in my opinion just kind of blown out the water they are and and that's even if, you know, BP's economist made another fascinating statement. He said, you know, it goes out to the 2040s, even if you assume that Western uh, Western developed countries like France and, you know, the European nations and the U.S. outlaw internal combustion engines for transportation. I mean, he's saying yeah. that even with that, even with electric vehicles eventually replacing all gasoline-powered automobiles, the demand for petroleum products... In, in so many other areas is going to just continue to radically increase. Uh, we, we sometimes forget that, that petroleum is a feedstock for all manner of chemicals and plastics and clothing and, you know, just on and on and on. All these products we use in our daily lives, I'm sitting here in my house looking at 10 different things, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we, that we don't think about. And mm-hmm. those things, the demand... For, for petroleum products in those areas is just going to continue to rapidly increase. So it, people who think the oil and gas industry is a dying industry simply don't understand the nature of modern life. No, no, you're 100% right. We've talked about this before. Um, I like to quote it like this. Unless you're out in the woods on the deer stand or on the lake and you're, <laughs> I guess maybe on the ocean, and all you can see is nothing but um, wilderness, everything you see right now has been touched by oil and gas is either you know the truck drove it there that had used diesel of course the truck has thousands of things that come from petrochemicals stuff like that you know if you're in a room and so yeah we we kind of forget about just how much we are dependent on um the black gold if you will and so um david yeah uh so we talked about forbes um shell mag um work db daily update um and you have is there anywhere else i worked about tipro here in a second but is there anywhere else on a more regular basis folks can find you no, not really. And by the way, I am now the uh, officially the editor of Shell Magazine. Well, congratulations. Uh, I did not know that. Shellmag.com and you know, invite people to visit the website. And uh, it's a really neat little magazine that has a, a lot of good stuff to offer. Well, congratulations on that. I did not know that. And I will say for the listeners, Thanks. I do Texas Oil and Gas Live on Instagram six days a week. And the dirty little secret is, is I go to Shell Mag and I click on David's daily post where he has a dozen things for oil and gas because you know if i don't have time to look at the headlines i just go to what david's already put out there and see what those dozen things 
are. And if it's something I want to talk about, then I pick two or three. And if it's something I don't, then I, you know, I go somewhere else, other resource. But I actually check that site every day, David, because I got to do a six day week show. <laughs> you know, I need content, yeah. and you've you've already curated the best dozen things for me to look at. So thank you for me at least, <laughs> because I check it no lie six days a week. Well. I don't check it on Saturdays because you don't do it for me on Saturdays. No, I don't do it on Saturdays. <laughs> I got to take the weekends off on that one. <laughs> but uh, but I do it. Five, I do check it five days a week. That alone is. Uh, I, I always tell people it's valuable because you know shows like this and other shows we're kind of a curation of the news. You know, it's like any news show. We just kind of take what we think is important, talk about it, um, and you kind of give a dozen headlines. You give your quick commentary there. Um, obviously, you write more longer pieces too. But just on a day to day basis, if you're looking for just kind of a quick spot to go, um, you know, Shell Mac right there at the top. There's a little scrolling link, and you can go back and see we, what David's put out um, from, from the um, previous days. I always get it wrong because I look at it so often. It's like the dozen things you need to know in oil and gas. Is that how it's titled? Yeah, the dozen things you uh, – oh, wait. Uh, what you need to know in oil and gas today. Okay, and it's a, but it's about a dozen items, right? It is a dozen That's items right. okay. every day. So be sure to check that out, and congratulations on the promotion. Uh, that's exciting to hear. And what is y'all's feature piece right now? Um, so the next issue, which will be coming out in about a week, actually, um, features partially energy. Uh, they're having to change over CEOs and, uh, it's a really interesting story about a startup company that started about 10 years ago that has become one of the real fastest growing, most dynamic companies in the Permian Basin. Again, this is another company that like Pioneer Natural Resources is focused strictly on the Permian Basin. And uh, it's a really neat story. The, the previous issue, the one that's up there currently, we, we had a cover story about the Port mm-hmm. of Corpus Christi, which has become the largest uh, oil export port in the country and is uh, one of the most rapidly growing ports uh, in the country and is just uh, an incredible success story for South Texas. No, we, yeah, we've talked about that. We've had Sean Strawbridge on, and hopefully the federal government will get their act together and fund that. Or I don't know if they can privately, if these six companies that kind of sent uh, planes, Oxy and the other group, I don't know if they can invest privately in that. I don't know the legality of all that, but that need, that deal needs to get done somehow. That's an important deal for the state I of think, Texas. Yeah. You know, I think uh, if it's still hanging out there for the next legislative session, I, I suspect uh, there will be an effort uh, within the legislature to go ahead and fund that out of the rainy day fund. Since since oil and gas severance taxes, you know, fund the rainy day fund, uh, I think it would be a really good use for that to get that port dredged because uh, it's, you know, this is an incredible economic driver for the whole state. And if the federal government won't dredge it, then then let's fund it through state money. Get it done. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, dredging it, and also they're going to widen it so two ships, one can come, one can go. It's a, it's a huge, huge deal that needs to happen um, much sooner rather than later. All the stuff that's going into Corpus right now, we need to get this deal done. So, okay, so David, that's where everybody can find you. Let's recap that. dbdailyupdate.com if you're curious about what's going on from a political landscape. is pretty much the commentary there on a daily basis. Um, sometimes you have uh, the evening campaign update, which always, I always get a chuckle out of, depending on the news. Um, um, Shell Mag, which you're now the editor of. Congratulations on that. Forbes, you contribute there. And um, from time to time, you come on a quality podcast like this. And so we appreciate your time today. For the listeners, um, apologies again for Josh. His wife is actually out sick, which is why he couldn't be here today. If you could, leave us a rating and review in iTunes. That helps us out. I'll be back next week. You know how Josh is. Sometimes he's here. Sometimes he's not. For David Blackman, this is Ryan Ray. And uh, until next time, keep climbing. Keep climbing.